The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudarman, and I'm joined today um, on Skype all the way from Texas. It's Janalyn Sanchez. Jana, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Um, I'm quite excited, actually, to have you on uh, today's show. The last time we met seemed like uh, another lifetime. I was living in London. You were living in London. Um, You were running a public relations agency, uh, a a very good public relations agency, as I recall, called City Savvy. Um, But now you have quite a different career going on. You are running for Congress in the... um, the 6th District of Texas. So tell us a little about that. Yes, um, it's it's completely true that I'm running for Congress, something I never, ever, ever thought I would do. I never even contemplated running for any kind of office before. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, if somebody had ever suggested it, I would have laughed. And then what happened was the election of Donald Trump to presidency last year. And um, as the granddaughter of a, of a man who immigrated here to America from Mexico, um, I felt very much under attack from the rhetoric from the far right in our country and the need to stand up and be counted and have a seat at the table. So um, it, it was a, it took a little while to get me to this point. What happened is, The night of the election, I was absolutely in shock, like everyone else I know in America who did not expect Trump to win. Um, And I was up all night texting my friends in Europe. They were all going, get out of there, come back to Europe, it'll be safe here. (laughs) Um, and, uh, And I thought about it, I thought about coming back. I had just moved home, I think about two years prior to that, to take help take care of my aging parents. And, um... And uh, I thought about going back to Europe, but I decided that this is my country and that I had a right and an obligation to stay and fight um, for people who aren't able to fight, but also for our democracy, because I felt what was happening was extremely undemocratic, uh, particularly the attacks on minorities and the attacks on the free press. Um, As a former journalist, I was very concerned about that. Mm. So... I'm probably going on too long, but a friend talked me into running, and I agreed essentially. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Please don't, don't, don't let me stop you. I'm, I'm, what was the? I mean, so you, you decided you wanted to stay and fight, and, and you know, I think that's those, those are really laudable sentiments. But to get from from there to actually running, what was the sort of clinching argument? Well, what happened is um, actually the next morning on November 9th, I texted a friend of mine. She and I used to raise money for Democratic candidates back, I mean, ages and ages ago. It was in the early 90s in California, the late 80s, early 90s. And um, and I texted her and I said, I really feel so guilty. All I did was give money to Hillary. I voted for Hillary, but I didn't do anything else and I didn't have any impact. And look what happened. And I said, I want to make sure I have an impact 
And I really thought she would say, you should raise money for Planned Parenthood, or you should go to work as a communications director for one of the organizations that deal with, with immigration issues, um, or one of the Democratic, the Democratic Party, for instance. I honestly thought that's what she would say, and that was the kind of advice I was looking for. But instead, she said, you have to run for office. And I, I said, no, that's crazy. <laughs> I said, I cannot run for office. And she said, yes, you can. She said, you can because you will win. And, um, and I started thinking about, she said, and I said, I live in a, in a district or in a county that's 80% Republican. Mm-hmm. And I'm a Democrat. So um, she said, well, look around and see if there are any districts where the incumbent looks vulnerable um, or the district is, is more favorable. So I did a little research and I saw that the congressional district, which is very large, and normally you would not jump into a congressional district as your first political campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the only district that I lived in that I thought was winnable because it's an R plus nine district which means that an average Republican would beat an average Democrat by nine points. Um, But I was expecting a blue wave, and I felt that I might be an exceptional candidate against a very weak incumbent Mm -hmm. um, who'd been there for 33 years and was very, very old and who's now out due to a sex scandal, which made the headlines even in London. Oh, yes. Um, yes. And uh, yes, that was my opponent. (laughs) Yes, I know, Um, and and we'll talk about that a little bit because I think you you actually wrote a, a rather catchy song um, yes, I've written well. a couple of catchy songs about him, which I'm not going to be able to play now, which is such a shame. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I decided to get into that race because the the lady who ran last time and the two guys who ran before that had raised almost no money, and you must raise lots of money to run a successful campaign in America. Mm. Um, I'm going to probably need to spend, I thought, $1.5 million, but now I think maybe $2 million before it's all over, mm-hmm. which I will have to raise. So if you cannot raise money, you cannot run a successful campaign. She'd only raised, um, at the time, I thought 14000 It turns to be out to be 22000 running against an incumbent who had raised $1.4 million. Um, so I thought, well, I can raise more. I can raise more than 22000 or $14,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I know how to message that this is where my, polit- my um, public relations background is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand media, and that's also been very important for my campaign, because I'm sure you want to know about how the overlap between pub- public relations and, and, and politics mm-hmm. So I decided that, um, and that I was willing to put in the work because I'm a very, very hard worker. I don't sleep much, and I work a lot. So I figured that would make a big difference. <laughs> so, um, so I decided yeah. to run, and I jumped in. And um, you know, I've been, I think, from the beginning, the front runner among the Democrats, um, mm. despite running against somebody who's ran before, um, and then running against a lot of um, basically young men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think being a woman today is very important. Being able to raise money is very important. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think probably the most important thing is having a message that appeals to the majority of voters in the district. I know that my opponents have also copied my messaging to a certain degree, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think they're as effective at it because it's more authentic for me. It's it's been my messaging from the beginning, mm-hmm. and. So I think I've been able to to be more effective with my messaging than they have been, and that is a result of my background in in, in public relations. Sure. So let's talk a little um, about your background first, because you were, if I'm not mistaken, a journalist with Reuters 
uh, in Europe, right, in Amsterdam. Um, yes, correct, and, in, in Amsterdam. Right, and then you set up, um, you co-founded the, the PR agency? Yes, correct. Um, so I, um, so I, so the first thing I did when I got out of school was political fundraising. Mm-hmm. The next thing I did is I went to journalism. I started at the Baltimore Sun. I was just a lowly editorial assistant, um, but they let me write a lot. I got a lot of public, a lot of um, articles published, mm-hmm. um, mainly in the food and travel sections. Is mainly where I wrote, but I wrote sort of featurey things, and that was great. That was great experience. And then when I moved to London, I worked, which I did in 96, at the end of 96, I worked in trade media. I did uh, technology trade media for a couple of years. And then I landed the job at Reuters as a correspondent in Amsterdam covering TMT. So it all sort of flowed very nicely. And then when I finished, I set up City Savvy. Um, And um, I ran that. I was the CEO for, I think, seven or eight years and then, um, and then we changed structure, and I was one of the partners. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm now still an owner, but I'm not involved in any way in the company. Mm, okay. And you moved back to the U.S. in? Well, initially, I, um, I, I came to the U.S. at the end, or the last half of 2014 mm-hmm. to help a colleague set up our London office. Mm-hmm. Um, but then our colleague didn't get her work permit. She was English, and she didn't get her work permit. Mm-hmm. And so everything sort of became up in the air then, and I sort of I came back and forth between Texas and New York um, the next year, mm-hmm. um, only half-heartedly trying to set up an, a company there because I just I didn't have it in me. I'd already done it twice, right. and I was ready for a change in my life. I was mainly doing a lot of songwriting, and performing here in Texas, and um, I rescued a dog, and I was sort of just enjoying my life in Texas, so I continued to work for a couple of clients, but I didn't really ever build the agency, because I I felt like I'd already built two offices, and I was at a point in my life where this probably wasn't really what I wanted to do, Uh so I, um, I went back and forth between New York and Texas for um, about, um, I guess it's only been, I guess it was almost two years, it was a, or a year and a half. Um, and then I, um, then I just said, forget it, I'm going to be here. And then I moved, I got rid of my New York apartment, mm-hmm. which saved me a bundle of money. Yeah, I <laughs> bet. Because it was so expensive. Mm. And then I'm just, I've been in Texas full time. Um, really for, again, about more than a year now I've been full-time here. Before that, I was commuting, and I was based here. Okay. And so you go from, from journalism to uh, running a PR agency and now running for Congress. Um, <laughs> what, I mean, it, which would you say has been um, the most fun of those three occupations? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think being a journalist was more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, PR was pretty fun, too. You know, there were a lot of glamorous things. You know, we got to go to all these nice award ceremonies, like the ones your company hosts. Um, we got to travel a lot for clients. You know, I spent I spent a lot of time on um, planes all over Europe. And as an American, that was, a lo- that was exciting and glamorous. Mm-hmm. We made a lot of money. You know, that was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, there's absolutely... Nothing fun about running for office except 
um, except parades. I love being in parades. <laughs> I've done four of them, and I okay. absolutely adore it. If I could do that every day, I would recommend everyone run for office. Um, parades, yeah. and I like block walking. Um, I like going out, knocking on the door, and actually talking to voters, which I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I now personally do it at least twice a week, maybe more. I was doing it five days a week, but I've had to focus more on fundraising now. Mm-hmm. Um, so running for Congress is not fun. I, again, I never planned to do it. Um, didn't, don't really enjoy it much. Um, it's just a kind of, I have a burning passion to save our country and save our democracy. Um, and that's the only thing that gets me up every morning <clears throat> because, um, because it's really hard. You know, you have people attacking you in a way that you don't have in public relations or journalism. Yeah. So. Um, you know, or at least at the level I was at, we didn't have that. So, um, so no, it's really different. And it's, it's not really, I don't recommend it. If you um, have any, um, if you're thin skinned at all, which I am, um, it's very hard to be in politics. And, um, and the work is very hard. You know, I sleep probably about four hours a night now. Mm. Um, and I, now I know why Margaret Thatcher only slept four hours a night. So it's really, it's very hard. So tell us a little bit about the um, the public relations lessons, the communications lessons that you've learned through your career and that you're applying to your campaign now. So I think one of the reasons that I'm doing very well in this campaign mm-hmm. is that I have a, a very strong sense of messaging about the importance of people understanding what you stand for. And I developed that through my work in public relations. Um, I was very um, shocked when I first got into public relations to learn that most companies don't actually have a strong set of messages about themselves. They have a tough time defining who they are and what they stand for and even what their strategy is. So I spent almost a decade helping companies sort that out. I mean, a lot of what I did at City Savvy was you know, message workshops to help companies figure out how to better talk about what they're doing, and also to help get everybody on the same page, um, which is harder than it sounds. You all, you think we're all such professionals. We know what we're doing. We should be very good at this. And that um, that was I, – so I spent so much time doing that, and I'm using that a lot. I, I sat down. I did that from the beginning. I very conscientiously thought about what are people hungry for? What do people want? People only really care about – the economics of their family and that's what I focused on from the beginning I you know there are a lot of other issues I care about but I've been able to focus because of my focus on messaging I could figure out what was important to people and focus on those things and I've done that I've been very very consistent in all of my messaging Um, I'm not saying it hasn't moved on a little bit around the edges it has moved on but the core issues have remained um, better jobs for high school graduates, health care for all, because that's a whole other story about what's happening here in health care, mm-hmm. and, um, and uh, well-funded public schools not depleted by vouchers. Mm-hmm. And these have been my messages from the beginning. Um, I also have some other messaging about you know immigration. It's a, a personal interest to me, and I know that I will be attacked viciously by the Republicans who are very anti-immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but I'm willing to stand up for that because I believe it very, very strongly. Mm. Um, but all of my messaging has been consistent, um, and my messaging has coordinated 
purposely with my visual image, mm -hmm. which is very Texan, very focused on being Texan, mm -hmm. and a little bit down home. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's been a part of my image from the beginning. You know, I always wear cowboy boots and denim skirts um, when everyone else is wearing a suit. And that has been treated with, um, um, you know, people have been critical of that. And I, mm -hmm. but I know it's right. And I know that it, because it matches with everything else I'm doing and it's consistent. And I think this comes from my public relations background. It's also all very authentic. So if I, if I hadn't been dressing like that already, <laughs> mm. um, you know, it may have been different. And I do put on a suit. If I feel like something requires a suit, then I will put on a suit. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, I don't, I don't dress up in a suit. I dress up how I would normally dress in my authentic way, my authentic Texas way. Okay. So you don't feel perhaps the need to to maybe double down on, on, on your Texan bona fides um, because perhaps, you know, you were in Europe living a kind of glamorous lifestyle. Um, sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. And, and again, um, I, people, some of my advisors, my, um, my supporters and my consultants were concerned that I was a little too removed from the lives of people in this district. It's a, it's a working class district. The average household income is 55000 mm. and only 30% of people get a four-year degree. So it's very much a working class district. Um, but I am, you know, I'm from an extremely poor family. Um, and I, everything that I've accomplished in life and everything that I've done in life has been as a result of of having the support of systems that were set up by Democrats, things like public schools, um, things like, you know, uh, funding for, for being, being able to go to university. So these are all Democratic programs which helped me in my life. Um, so I try to bring everything back to my childhood and my, and my um, background as a true product of the American dream, someone whose grandfather, and my father, in fact, grew up on the road as a migrant farm worker. And, you know, my, my father was an agricultural worker who got his lucky break and got a job in a cement factory um, and then a steel factory when I was in 10th grade, which is, or sorry, 6th grade, which is about when you're 10 or 11. Um, and that sort of brought us into the lower middle class <laughs> um, instead of the incredibly poor class. Um, so my, you know, my understanding of people in the district comes from my um, background growing up here and being these, being like everybody else here. Mm. So I think it's about really the experiences that I've had in Europe. I talk about them all the time. I do not hide from them. My health care plan is based almost entirely on the Dutch system. And I'm able to talk with authenticity. So a lot of the progressive left side of the Democratic Party here talks about single-payer health care, right. which is like the NHS. Yeah, and sure. my plan is a Bismarckian plan, which is based very closely on my experience in the Netherlands. Mm. And it's basically a translation of the U.S. system or the Dutch system for the U.S. market. And I do talk about the fact that I lived in both systems. They're both way better than we have here um, that I would support single payer if there were if that was what people uh, wanted to do um, however I think the Bismarckian system is better and I talk about that I'm I'm you know I'm maybe sometimes sort of a geek on details mm. 
um, because I am I do like to study these things, and I have studied and I have determined um, alongside my own personal experiences that Bismarckian systems are better. Mm. Um, most of Europe is Bismarckian, so mm. um, Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands. I think pretty much most of Europe is Bismarckian. I think only the UK is a single payer. Mm. And, um, and so I'm able to talk about that in my experience. And I also talk about, I mean, I do talk about my experience living abroad. Um, it's, I don't know if on balance it's a plus, but it's a, it's a plus in terms of how it shapes my policy mm-hmm. and my experience. Mm-hmm. And I am a business person, and my business is in Europe. So, yeah. so you know, being a business person is a good credential when sure. running for office. So, so you- I can't really hide from it. Yeah, of course, and and you. It sounds like you you almost treat yourself like like a brand, which is, is presumably it is. It's a brand, right? Which is yes. presumably what yes. you should do as a candidate. Now, I'm sure you, you are. To. I'm sure you are aware of brands and companies that are overproduced um, when it comes to their messaging yes. and their public relations. So, how do you guard against that as a candidate? Because I must, I'm sure you, you also see it, we all see it, right, with political candidates where it sometimes, look like, sometimes looks like they're a little slick. bit too slick. Um, well, I think, that's about being, I think it's about being authentic. Mm. So um, I think that I'm an extremely authentic person. Anyone who knows me for five minutes mm-hmm. knows exactly where I stand on everything and, where, and what I think. Yes. And I've always been like that. And to the point that it's really hurt me in my past because I can't, I can't hide my true feelings. I just don't have that ability. So people who support me know that they support me because they, I work hard, I'm smart, um, and because I'm who I say I am. And, that, and I think that comes through. And I think all you have to do is be true to who you are and why you're fighting and what you're doing, and that will come through to voters. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who spend their whole life um, wanting to be in an elected office. And I think in that case, they probably spend a lot of time, you know, perfecting their life so that they look the part. Um, I don't look the part. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have a, a, a husband and four children and I have only a dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I think there's almost no chance that I'm overproduced. I think quite the opposite. I think a lot of my supporters sometimes think, why doesn't she just, you know, try a little bit harder to be um, less herself? <laughs> mm, right. Another question I wanted to ask you, and again, comes back comes back to the kind of um, the dynamics which uh, I suppose typically characterize political campaigns. Compared to the business world, politics is much more zero-sum, right? So you win, someone else loses, or you lose, someone else wins. How do you deal with the kind of negativity and the attacks? Because that's not something that you have to do as much of when you're managing a brand's reputation. Um, It would be almost impossible to deal with the negativity. I've been attacked um, pretty viciously because I'm the front runner mm. by the other Democrats, and it's going to get worse when I get into the general against the Republicans. I still have another few months to go in the primary, mm. um, and then I'm going to have nine months against Republicans. I could not survive this if I didn't have a core group of people who stand beside me 
and say, wow, what a dick that person was, <laughs> or, you know, wow, that really backfired on them. And, you know, you just keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sometimes say, well, I don't know. I think they kind of scored one against you there or whatever, you know, they're honest and they're helpful, mm-hmm. but it's a support team. I also, you know, this year there's something phenomenal happening in this country, which is that 18,000 women have mm-hmm. at least thought about um, running for an office and I work with very, very closely with a core group of about 25 women who are running for other offices. And we always say to each other, I don't know how we would survive if we didn't have each other. We, um, you know, we chat on WhatsApp and we, you know, I, I sent a snarky message this morning about one of my opponents <laughs> to the group. It's all confidential and we don't, we don't share it outside the group. Mm. And I sent a snarky message about one of them. And, you know, of course, it's laughing and everybody making fun of him and everything. So um, so that sort of helps, like knowing that you're not in this alone. Mm. Um, you, I, I might be in this district alone, but I've got this huge support system of my of my um, friends um, who are who are running my campaign, essentially. Mm. And and um, also of these women who are running their own campaigns and we all help each other. We one called me last night to ask me for advice on what to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I could talk to her on my way home um, in the car, which was great. And so, you know, it's that support system is very, very important. And also, you just have to believe that this isn't about you. Um, that has been the hardest part of this for me is that I went from being someone in the background advising CEOs, helping CEOs sound smart and on top of messaging to actually being the person out front, something I am not comfortable doing and have never wanted to do. Um, But you have to just realize you are just, you are the front person here for an idea, for a movement, for a belief, for a cause, and that you're representing not yourself, but all these other people who believe in what you're doing and want to help you. Mm-hmm. So you you have to step back from it a bit and not take it too personally. It's hard. I mean, you know, I can imagine what Joe Barton feels like right now because that's all on him, and there's nobody else that he can that you know can be blamed. No. And um, and you know, I'm sure it's a very lonely place to be. Well, um, he uh, so- he made his bed, if you'll excuse the pun. Well, I, you know, I, I think, I don't know if you saw my press release about this. I, I feel that, yeah. um, I don't feel like he did a whole lot wrong. I feel that um, he, he got, he basically did something a little bit foolish is that he did something public. Mm. Um, he put something on the internet that he, that should have remained private. Yeah. But other than that, I feel that he was in a way a victim um, and um, in a way judged very harshly for something that, um, many, many, many people do. I mean, there's a reason smartphones are so um, successful, mm-hmm. and a lot of that has to do with sort of sexting and sending videos and all that stuff. <laughs> I must so, be missing out on all this, but but you kind of, I mean, you did contribute to it a little bit, right? Because you um, followed um, Joe Barton around, you, you wrote, I think, at least one song, or was it two? Uh, I've written two songs about Joe Barton, mm. um, and I, and, I mean, it's really true. For me, what was obscene about Joe Barton was not um, that video, which I don't want to ever see again because it was really gross, um, but, was, but was more his voting record. Mm. Um, his voting record was obscene. He didn't represent the people of this district, and it was really fun having someone like that to be your opponent. Mm-hmm. Now there are 11 Republicans um, apl- um, running to, to take his place, and 
I can't write songs about all of them. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I wrote two songs. One was called um, Don't Tell Us to Shut Up, which he told someone to shut up at a town hall meeting. And I wrote that song. And then the other one was called Quid Pro Joe, which is about his record of taking money from polluters and big oil and voting against his district mm-hmm. um, and also paying his children lots of money from campaign funds. Mm. Um, so it was a really funny song. I loved it. It's online. You can find it at quidprojo.com. It's sure. still there. We'll, um, we'll link to it on the, in our, <laughs> in our show notes. So if you're listening to this, um, and you can find it on online via the link Jan has given, or we'll, we'll link to it on the homesreport.com website as well. Coming back to the, the issue of negative attacks, do you have, for example, a rapid response operation? Do you have a war room? Is there kind of a, a structure uh, to deal well, with it? At this point, we're in the primary now, Mm. and I don't really need a rapid response because I'm so far out in front of the other candidates. I've Mm. been working so hard. Um, I feel that they don't have the ability... Um, either they don't they also they don't have anything negative really that they can say about me that I haven't made public myself mm-hmm. um, and um, they they try but mostly I just ignore them because mostly they are total amateurs um, so I ignore them right. um, I do have a lawyer who I consult um, when they do something particularly outrageous mm. um, but so far it's you know it's all friendliness in public mm-hmm. um, and then you know, um, talking about me behind my back, nothing that I would react to. Right. Um, I, I did, I did get accused of being, um, yeah, one, there was a troll who was, who was part of one of the other campaigns, a fake profile who went around telling everyone was messaging everyone saying that I'm a fake Latina, um, mm-hmm. which means that I, um, they said I am white mm-hmm. and that I got the name Sanchez from one of my four ex-husbands, well, oh, first wow. of all, I haven't been married four times. I stopped at two. Um, and secondly, um, I was born with the name Sanchez, and I'm exactly what I've always said I am, which is a person of mixed race mm. um, or a mixed, a mixed heritage. My grandfather was Mexican, and everybody else was Scots-Irish or English. And, um, and I'm very proud of that, of that background. I think it's very truly American. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just a little bit smarter than them. So what I did is I took a screenshot of my Ancestry DNA page that shows that my heritage comes from central Mexico. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I posted it on my website. And it got thousands of likes. I mean, it, people loved it. People loved the... Um, because if they can prove that you are not who you say you are, then that really damages your brand, mm-hmm. your, your, you as a person. Brand. So in that case, I responded to it. But I know how to respond to those things. I don't really have to ask anyone. I just, my instinct is... Um, to to stand up and, and argue. Also, one of my opponents was going around telling people that I was a homophobe. Um, and so I addressed that. I uh, just addressed it on my Facebook page. I have a following of about 20,000 people on social media. Um, and and um, Real people? You know, real people. Yeah, that's interesting because one of my opponents bought about 12,000 bots um, on Twitter so she could look like she was... Um, following um, but I actually have 13,000 followers <laughs> right, okay. so um, and they're very active you can you can tell when people are mm. followed by bots and when they're actually have an active following mm-hmm. and so I have a good network for getting news and and information out very quickly I have um, you know I have about um, 
at least probably about 5,000 followers between my two pages on Facebook. And then I have 13,000 followers on Twitter. And then I have a couple thousand followers on LinkedIn. And I also have things like Instagram. And then I have a mail, an email database of 15,000 people. Hmm. So you know, sending rumors around in um Activist networks don't really have much effect if you can if you have a larger stage yeah. from which to speak and and also if you're speaking the truth. Yeah, and you, it sounds like you know as as befits someone with your communications background, you have probably a better than average grasp of digital media. I would imagine. Yes, I'm far. I'm way ahead of. I'm way ahead of my Democratic opponents, and I'll be way ahead of whichever Republican mm. um, comes out of an 11-way race because mm. there are 11, um, 11 Republicans vying to run against me. Mm-hmm. Now, how important will that digital footprint be, given that you know, so much politics is retail, right, still? So um, it has a couple of functions. Um, it does help me um, solidify my relationship with people locally. Um, for instance, I just recruited a bunch of candidates to run in Ellis County, one of the three counties in my in my district. Mm. And um, a lot of that was done via Facebook Messenger. And because they were friends of mine on Facebook, I could message them and say, hey, you look like somebody who might want to run for office. <laughs> and, and I got a lot of positive responses. And because they knew me over the last year via Facebook, they were more open to coming on board and running for these lower offices, which is very important for voter turnout. It boosts, the more people you have on the ballot as a Democrat, the more voter turnout is boosted. And we haven't had a Democratic slate in this county for about 30 years. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, it was, a pretty, it was a pretty big coup. It's like probably one of the most exciting things I've done since running. Mm. And so I recruited a lot of those via Facebook and via my relationships via Facebook. Um, the other thing I've done very successfully with social media is I've raised a lot of money via social media. Mm. So a lot of my contributions come in $1 contributions or $10 or $25. I've even had some of $1,500 that I got from people who only knew me from social media, mm. um, particularly Facebook. You, you have a real chance to bond with people on Facebook. And so I was able to build a pretty successful, a pretty good following on Facebook of women in particular, but some men who have sent large contributions to my campaign and a lot of people who have sent small contributions to my campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, so social media is really important. It's very important for managing volunteers. We have about a 15 to 20 people every weekend who walk precincts with us and talk to voters, mm-hmm. and we organize all that through Facebook. My deputy campaign manager um, uses that a lot. My finance manager uses it a little less. Um, so my, my fundraising, the person who's responsible for fundraising uses it a little less. Um, but much of my strength as a candidate does come from my strong social media presence, particularly Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter has gotten me some national attention. Um, you know, I've had some national endorsements and those groups, I think, probably heard about me via Twitter. Um, because I have such a large following, and it's a very, very active following where people retweet a lot and and like a lot and that sort of thing. And I have a, a I think a a kind of sarcastic or um, ironic um, sense of myself on Twitter, and I think that works well there. You have to be careful. I do get in trouble sometimes, um, and I have to be careful um, about that because I do go a bit overboard. Yeah, but I think uh, it's impossible to not 
I think doing what you're doing, uh, you know, you are. Well, when you look at, you know, our choices today are between mm. two men who have relationships with, um, with um, young girls. One, one prosecuted their murderer um, and the other one is, um, was dating them. Mm. And, you know, that's our choices today in Alabama. And, you know, you can't help calling Roy Moore a pedophile. I mean, it's just going to come up, you know. Mm. So, mm. you know, that's you get into trouble for things like that. But I do it anyway. Sure. Now, you mentioned the number, um, I think it came from Emily's list, uh, the, the number of women that are seeking yes. or interested in running for office has just been this remarkable explosion, right? 18,000, 19,000. Why do you think that's happened? And how important do you think that is for the direction of um, of political races, you know, whether it's nationally or locally? I think it's phenomenally important. Um, now, I always say I didn't run because I'm a woman. I ran because I'm a patriot. And, um, and, while that's true, there's something very, very special happening this year. When we walk precincts, we hear we hear people say to us, women and men, I'm sick of the men who are in office. I think it's it's like overwhelmingly male on almost every level of this country, the leadership. I'm sick of men. I'm only voting for women this year. And I don't think many men are going to do very well against women, to be honest. I think women candidates are certainly going to prevail in the Democratic Party in almost every case um, where they might be sort of equal candidates. The woman is going to prevail. Um, and I think a lot of men probably set out this year because they could see that there was something phenomenal happen. And that was before all of the allegations of sexual harassment and abuse that's, that was surfacing. I mean, mm. a lot of the, the anger that you saw um, and the determination that you saw in women in the Women's March of almost a year ago now, um, mm. you know, women across this country and, and the world um, went out in, um, you know, all absolutely to protest and to, and to find solidarity. Um, we have elected a man to office who bragged openly about grabbing women by the pussy because he could. And um, and that infuriated a lot of women. It's also a coalition of people who elected him who believe that women should not have um, control over their own bodies, mm -hmm. should not have access to birth control, um, should not be given equal rights in many cases, um, and, and including women who voted for this. Um, you know, um, white Americans overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump of every income level, not just the working poor, as it's often portrayed, mm -hmm. and including the majority of white women voted for Donald Trump. And that is just shocking to any progressive woman. It's absolutely shocking and appalling. Um, so I think we're really fired up as, as a country. And I think a lot of women came to the same conclusion that my friend brought me to, which is that we in order to have a seat at the table, we have to be at the table. We have to be in power. And, you know, again, I know that of the women's group that I work with, 25, I think only one of them, one, a couple of them had run before, so they were obviously inclined already to run for office. And one of them had grown up knowing that she was going to run for office. Everybody else was only fired up by the election of Donald Trump. And, um, and, um, but we also think that the election of Donald Trump was symbolic of the fact that women were not being heard, women were not being listened to. 
and um, and you know that is it, it's it's all very complicated, and maybe we can't always put it into words. But there's a there's a movement that's happening among women in this country, mm. and we are you know we're standing up, we're being counted, we're asking, and we're demanding that we be heard. Mm. And a lot of that is happening through marches and through groups and through. Um, you know, a lot of other means, but a lot of it is going to be happening at the ballot box. Mm. And and it and will forever change the complexion of this of this country's electorate. Um, you know, especially if we prevail um if we prevail at, in twenty eighteen. Mm. Well that is both um reassuring and encouraging to hear. Um Janelyn, thank you so much for your time. Um Thank you. Of course, the best of luck. I think I can probably say, without any fear um, of being called biased, that you are the Holmes Report's preferred candidate for the uh, well. Thank you very much for the Texas Sixth <laughs> District. So we're happy to give you our endorsement already. Um, so well thank done. Thank you very I much. I appreciate that. <laughs> although I, I am quite sure it will have absolutely zero bearing on your chances, but it sounds zero like bearing. zero. But it sounds like you don't need our support. We'll check in with you again, though, for sure, um, perhaps after the primary is over and, and you're, engaged, yes. you're engaged. That would be great, yes. You're engaged in a fight with a, with a Republican opponent, opponent <laughs> which I guess will be uh, even more fun, but I imagine, you know, even more high profile as well. So, yes, thank you. I think so. Yeah. So, thank you very much. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.